Well, uh, it's time to return to the topic of spiritual gifts. Uh, I was tasked with uh, teaching on spiritual gifts at a conference, and it was just one message, and I realized as I began to study that this is something that uh, I need to bring here because it's so valuable for our understanding of life in the church. And so one message turned into two messages. It's probably going to be three or four messages. We'll see how that goes. But would you please pray with me as we turn our attention to God's Word? Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for a new day of life, thankful for your grace and your mercy, which are new every morning. And we come to you now, Lord, as dependent children, um, needy and desperate for truth. Father, we realize that uh, this will fall on deaf ears, that uh, I won't be able to communicate uh, in the power of the Spirit apart from your Spirit. And so we pray, God, we beg that you would be working mightily within us to illumine our hearts and to Give us eyes to see and ears to hear all that Jesus has for us this morning. So please be our help, we pray in his name. Amen. Well, the close of Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells a parable. And many of you are familiar with that parable. It's the parable of the talents. A master gives five talents to one of his servants and two talents to another and one talent to the last servant. Servants one and two, they go and they invest their talents and Lo and behold, that investment pays off. They are blessed and those talents are multiplied. The third servant, however, he goes away and what does the Bible say? He dug a hole and he hid it. And you know the moral or the principle of the story. Jesus, the spiritual truth that he's teaching is that we are stewards of God's gifts. And so our time, our treasure, our talents are to be invested. They're to be exercised. They're to be used for God's glory. The guy who buried his master's gift made a grave mistake. And the master rebuked the servant and said, you wicked and lazy slave. And in verse 29 of chapter 5 of Matthew we read this, for to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. The same principle can be applied to our spiritual gifts, because God has graciously given to each of us a gift so that we can, in love, serve one another and build up the body of Christ. Our gifts, the Bible teaches us, they are a stewardship. A stewardship that we're going to have to give an account for when we meet the Lord face to face. And therefore, it's important, it's imperative that we understand what the gifts are and how we're to use them for the glory of God. And Paul said this at the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He said, I do not want you to be ignorant of spiritual gifts. So right off the bat, we understand that there are no excuses for not knowing. The gifts, as we look at the New Testament, are mentioned over and over again. In fact, 155 times we see them mentioned, described, regulated, or portrayed in the New Testament. And in addition to that, there's another 65 times that they're either described as signs or miracles or wonders in operation, which means that Spiritual gifts are not on the periphery, but spiritual gifts are central to the life and health of the church. 
And as I mentioned last week, there are a couple of lists that we can go to in the scriptures to find out what these spiritual gifts are. There's Romans chapter 12, there's 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Those are the two most extensive lists of spiritual gifts. But there's also a list in 1 Peter 4 and Ephesians 4. So you have those four passages, but the interesting thing is that they're not all exactly the same, which makes it very difficult to count them up. Not only to count them up, but to also categorize them. So every book that I read and every sermon that I listened to as I began this study, uh, they don't agree on the number of gifts. They don't agree on the category of gifts. So some writers say if you just go to those lists and you add them all up, that's what you get. So some say 17, some say 19, some say more than that. But I'm not convinced. Some have also tried to categorize the gifts. And so here are a couple of the categories. They say there's the category of gifts, services, and workings. They say there's the category of motivational gifts, ministry gifts, and manifestation gifts. Some say there's temporary gifts, and then there's permanent gifts. Some say there's miraculous gifts and ministering gifts. And so by the time you read all these, you just say, hmm, I don't know that we can be dogmatic about it. I think it's safe to say that because the list of gifts we have in Scripture are not identical, that the best way to interpret this is that this is not an exhaustive list, but rather they're just a sample. They're a sample of the spiritual gifts. And so if you're taking notes, here's our main idea. This is what I want you to walk away with. Every Christian, that includes you if you're in Christ, every Christian receives at least one spiritual gift, or a combination of gifts which the Holy Spirit enables them to carry out their divinely assigned function as a member of Christ's body, which is the church. I'm going to say that again. Every Christian receives at least one spiritual gift or combination of gifts which the Holy Spirit enables them to carry out their divinely assigned function as a member of Christ's body, which is the church. Each of you this morning, if you're in Christ, you have a gift, and God expects you, he desires that you use that gift to bring him glory, to build up the church, and when you do so, you look like Jesus when you're operating under the power of the Spirit. So here's our outline. Uh, we're just going to break this up like uh, Peter does. He, he splits them up basically in serving gifts and speaking gifts. And we won't have time to get into the sign gifts, so most of our attention will be on those two categories right there, serving gifts and speaking gifts. And uh, if you look here, the, I've got a chart, and hopefully you can see this. Um, the chart is a little color-coded. This is to help me. And maybe you're able to see that the lists are not the same. They're not in order. Some are listed in one section and not in another, but here are those four lists. And each of them begin with being given these gifts according to grace. That's Romans 12. 1 Corinthians 12 says, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit. And 1 Corinthians 12, 28 says, it is God that is appointed in the church. And then there's another list of gifts. In Ephesians 4, we understand here that these gifts are actually people, people that are gifts to the church with these particular giftings. But again, I think the best way to categorize them and maybe even simplify this is to put them in the serving gifts, the speaking gifts, and the sign gifts. And we're not going to be too rigid, and so if you don't agree, that's fine. We could talk about that. 
But I do think this will be helpful. And I do want to say that I do think that even though you're given a particular gift, it's really a combination of gifts. So I don't want you walking away like trying to pigeonhole yourself into just one thing. And so that's a mistake that we don't want to make, and we'll talk more about that as we move on. But here's my three classifications, serving gifts, speaking gifts, and sign gifts. Those serving gifts are those things that we use with our hands and our feet as we minister to the body of Christ. The the speaking gifts are things that we usually do with our words, with our communication to build up the body. And the sign gifts, you say, well, what about those, Dama? I believe that those are miraculous in nature, and they were exercised in order to help establish the beginning of the church. That's why you see some bricks being laid. That is the foundation. And we believe that those sign gifts have ceased. Now, we're going to move through this list, and we're going to do it alphabetically. Okay, so we're not going to necessarily go in order, but that's to keep them organized and keep them in a respective category. So what I want to do is, uh, first I want to define the gift, then I want to describe just a few ways that Jesus himself demonstrated that particular gift, and then provide just a few potential dangers or misuses of that particular gift. So we'll define it, how Jesus demonstrated, and then identify a few dangers. You ready? Here we go. Gift number one of the serving gifts. This is the gift of administrations or the gift of leading. And we see this in 1 Corinthians 12, 28. Here's the definition of the gift of administrations. The Holy Spirit enables certain believers to organize, direct, and implement plans in order to lead people in various ministries of the church. So the Greek word, when you look at this word, uh, is the word for a shipman or a helmsman. And on a ship, the helmsman was the person who, he steers the ship. He's not the captain of the ship, but he's the one that is driving the ship. The captain, he has his orders. He knows where he needs to go. We need to travel in this direction. And the helmsman comes and says, where are we going? The captain tells him and he says, aye, aye, captain. And then he begins to direct the ship in that direction. The helmsman is always going to be familiar with the map and the weather and the conditions of the boat and the conditions with the people on the ship. And it's the same for this gift of administrations. People with this gift usually have strong organizational skills. They're adept at managing people, managing resources, managing time. They're the ones that understand the church's immediate needs and their long-range goals. They're able to put plans into practice. They're a gift to the church because what these gifted people are doing is helping drive the mission of the church. We say, well, how was this gift demonstrated by Jesus? Well, Jesus is the administrator extraordinaire. Now, the church you realize this, is to do everything decently in order. And we say, well, why do we have to do that? Well, because God is a God of being decent and in order. The Lord, he never haphazardly builds the church. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. And the reason why is because he is administering the church even now. When he was here on earth, think about what Jesus did. He hand-selected 12, and then even within the 12, he selected three, and then he sent out 70. Everything he did had a plan. And even now, while 
the Lord is not here. He's still deploying his people to fulfill the mission to which he came. Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning right now from heaven. He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and he is literally administering all of human history, and he's accomplishing his plan and purposes just like he said before the foundation of the world. The question is, as you sit and listen to this, do you have the gift of administrations? Do you have skills in planning? Do you like organizing and supervision? Do you like to execute another person's vision and help give direction? Are you the kind of person that likes to make decisions? Do you have the ability to, to organize people and things? When you read the Bible, do you find yourself gravitating towards certain stories? Hey, those guys are like building something. They're constructing a wall. They're, they're constructing the temple. When things are poorly organized, does that kind of irk you? And do you have a desire to jump in and want to try to fix things? Like in the book of Acts, this is chaotic. We need some guys who are full of the Spirit to come and, and provide some order and some direction. That is what the deacons did. But there's a few dangers to those who have the gift of administration. You say, Dom, what are those dangers? Well, sometimes those with this gift that can make organization and efficiency an idol. It might be difficult for someone with this gift to work with other people or to be patient with those who don't share your love for organization and, and management. So in my home, if you open up my drawers, even though I wasn't in the military, everything is color-coordinated, everything is folded nice and neat. My wife's is just... <laughs> it's different gifting there. Another danger is wanting everything to be so put together that you're unwilling to take risks for the Lord. And so you become rigid. You don't allow for any spontaneity. If it's not scheduled, if it's not organized... If it's not up to your standard, then you withdraw from people. Administrators can at times have relational challenges with others because they just don't share your priorities or your paradigm for how you're going to get things done. And you're even tempted to be controlling, controlling of information, controlling of finances, controlling of policies. And that is why those with the gift of administration need to know not just where they're going, but how we're going to get there and why we're going that direction. And when people with this gift are walking in the Spirit, they are a humongous blessing to the church because they're helping lead and they're bringing others along with them to fulfill the mission of the church. Let's look at another gift, the gift of discernment or distinguishing spirits in 1 Corinthians 12.10. Here's the definition of the gift of discernment. It is the wisdom to recognize what is true and what is false and the ability to correctly evaluate whether beliefs and behaviors are from God. At the beginning of our exposition in the book of Philippians, we went back to Acts chapter 16, and in Acts 16, we encountered a slave girl that the Bible says had a spirit of divination. In Acts 16, we learned that this was a young girl who was bringing her master money, and she was doing that by fortune-telling and in verse 17, we read this, that she was following them, saying, these men are slaves of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Now, at face value, that sounds fantastic. I would love, you know, a little posse walking behind me saying, this person's preaching the gospel. 
But in verse 18, we read this, and she continued to do this for many days, and being greatly annoyed, Paul turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to leave her. That right there, that's discernment. It's distinguishing between spirits. See, Paul understood that even though she was saying the right thing with her mouth, that she had evil intent in her heart. So the question to you is, does this describe you? Now, are you able to perceive whether something is from the Lord or from the enemy? Are you a good judge of people's character? Can you identify when someone is teaching something that is true and someone who's teaching something that is false? Do you have that little alarm, that little radar that goes off and says, wait a second, I don't think that accords with what the Bible actually teaches. That's what the gift of discernment does. It enables you to say, oh, that, that's, that's true, that's real, that's good, that's honorable. Well, that, that's, that's false, that's dangerous. How was this gift demonstrated by the Lord Jesus? Well, obviously Jesus is omniscient. So, so no one's pulling a fast one on Jesus. He knows the hearts, he knows the minds of all people. In fact, in John chapter 2, we read this in verse 24. It says, but Jesus, on his part, he was not entrusting himself to them, why? For he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, and then it says, for he himself knew what was in man. You didn't have to tell Jesus, I don't know about this guy, Jesus, because Jesus saw through it all. He knew who were the fakers. He knew who were the flatterers. He knew who the phonies were. But he also knew who were the seekers and who were the sincere, because Jesus is the epitome of discernments. Does this describe you? Are you able to see the true from the false? Some of us are just kind of gullible, aren't we? I put myself in that mix sometimes. Just gullible, naive. But if that describes you, you need to do one of two things. You need to find someone who's discerning and put them right next to you, like my wife, who's extremely discerning. We all have blind spots. Just for me, she's like my, my trucker mirror. So she's able to see things that I don't see. But in addition to having discerning people around you, we need to grow in our discernment. And the way to grow in our discernment is to know what is true. Because the more that you know what is true, the easier you'll be able to spot what is false and what is counterfeit. But here's just a few dangers as we think about this particular gift. Some of those that have a gift of discernment might be tempted to be too quick to come to conclusions, maybe too quick to, to counsel out everybody else. The misuse of this gift of discernment is you shooting a shotgun rather than a sniper. So you see air, and rather than just attacking that air, you just shoot everything else. There's a lot of so-called discernment leaders and bloggers, a lot of people on Twitter and they always like to address what's wrong with pastors and churches and organizations. And they're always focusing on what's wrong and who's, who's evil and who's teaching heresy and who's of the devil. We need that. Don't get me wrong. But at the same time, you don't want to be known just for that. If you identify error, if you feel like the Lord has called you to be a watchdog, then you need to provide truth and provide orthodoxy and speak in love too often, discerning leaders are very critical, and that's all they are is critical. 
But listen, if something is wrong, if you identify some error, especially if a brother or sister is in error, then you gently and lovingly and self-examiningly and patiently need to correct that. But there's a spirit in which you do it. It's a spirit of gentility. Well, let's look at another gift, the gift of faith. We see this in 1 Corinthians 12.9 and also in 13.2. Here's the definition for the gift of faith. The gift of faith is a manifestation of an intense trust in God with which God gives the ability to some to trust in the power of God to conquer enormous obstacles or impossibilities. Now, we need to make a distinction here because this is not saving faith. This is the gift of faith. And every believer has saving faith. But this gift here is referring to the ability to trust and act on God's revealed character and nature and revelation. And in so doing, he empowers other people to do the same. You can tell this kind of faith is being exercised when a person, he just has an expectancy, a conviction, an unwavering trust. No, God is able. God can do that. You get discouraged and you begin to say, I'm, I'm, I'm so sad that so-and-so is not saved or so-and-so is sick and someone comes alongside you and says, no, believe in the promises of God. If God wants to do it, he will do it. There's an exercising of faith. Having this gift of faith is great for the person exercising it, but you ask, how does someone else's faith build up the church? Or how does someone who has the, the, the gift of faith How does that provide a common good for everyone else? And all you have to think about is when you read biographies and you see the faith of these spiritual giants like George Mueller, you say, well, he had nothing. And yet he trusted the Lord and the Lord continued to provide for his needs as he built an orphanage, not one, but two. And it encourages our faith. It reminds us that God said, hey, I can move mountains. Trust me. You say, well, how was this gift demonstrated by Jesus? Did Jesus actually have faith? Well, the Bible says he's the author and perfecter of our faith, but did he himself exercise faith? In Hebrews chapter 12, it tells us that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. He endured the cross because he looked beyond the cross to what was already promised, what was sure, and he trusted God. Back in chapter 2 of Hebrews, the writer explicitly connects faith to Christ. The prophet Isaiah was speaking of Christ when he says, I will put my trust in him. You see, no one believed the promises of God more than the Son of God. When his family doubted him, when his disciples abandoned him, when his friends denied him, when all of his fellow Jews who he came to save rejected him, When all of that happened, despite all of those things, Jesus continued to entrust himself to the Father. And you say, well, how how far did he go? To what extent? Then I would just invite you to, to walk your way to the Garden of Gethsemane and see your Savior dropping sweats of blood, pleading with the Lord. And even though he said, Father, will you please take this cup away from me? And the answer came back, no. What did Jesus say? Not my will be done, but your will. That is faith. That is trust. That is confidence that God's plan is always best. So the question is, do you have this kind of faith? An extraordinary confidence and reliance on the purpose and plan 
of God. You say, well, Don, what are some of the dangers of faith? Well, I would say two dangers. One is to presume upon God. That's not wise. Like God owes you something. We don't want to do that. And the other is to pray your will be done instead of God's will. Both of those errors need to be avoided. Let's go to our next gift, the gift of giving or the gift of generosity. We see this in Romans chapter 12 and verse 8. And here's the definition of the gift of giving. The Spirit of God empowers some believers with the gift of giving, which moves them to give sacrificially of their time, talents, and finances to further the work of the Lord. Those with this gift have the ability to wisely and generously and joyfully use their resources to meet the needs of ministries and oftentimes missionaries. The goal is to encourage. The goal is to provide. Those with this gift are constantly giving credit to God. They're not drawing attention to themselves. Now listen, you say, well, I don't have that gift. Um, But every believer is called to be generous. Those who have this gift, though, are particularly willing and able to share the resources that they do have. And again, they don't sound the trumpet. They, They don't let everyone know when and how much they give. They often do it very quietly and behind the scenes, never wanting recognition and never being expected to be paid back in return. This gift also, listen to this, it doesn't depend on being wealthy or being rich. I think sometimes we think, oh, the the people who have this gift are the wealthy people. That's not true. You think about the widow who gave just that one mite, and by the world standards, that wasn't much, but in God's eyes, she gave everything that she had. And there's the church of Macedonia. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 8 that through their deep poverty, they determined to collect an offering and send it to the saints in Jerusalem who were suffering and who were being persecuted. You say, well, how was this gift demonstrated by Jesus? And the response to that is, did you know that when you open up your Bible, your New Testament, that Jesus spends about 25% of the things that he says on this particular topic? He's always talking about stewardship and generosity and giving. Why? Because Jesus, by his very nature, is a generous giver. And he expects his children to do the same thing. One of the reasons Jesus was the most blessed person on the planet was because he was such an extravagant giver. I mean, think about all the heavenly riches that are yours this morning because your Savior is a gift giver. He gave you his life. He gives you his love. He gave you his righteousness. He gave you his holiness. He gave you his spirit. He showed you his glory. He's a great gift giver. The question is, do you have this gift? Do you see the needs of others and have a desire to want to meet those needs? Do you see people who are struggling and say, hey, I can come along and help? And it doesn't necessarily have to be you pulling out your checkbook, but you just want to give. You want to give of yourself. You want to give of your time. You want to give of your resources to be a help to people in need. Do you love to give? Are you a generous giver? Now, here's a couple of dangers. You say, I don't see how it's a danger to give. Well, you could be very generous, but you could be a poor steward. What do I mean by that? There are some people 
who are really great at stewarding their time and their education and their talents and their resources, all of which increase someone's wealth, but sometimes we're not too discerning in how we give, and so we give to lesser causes or lesser things. I do know plenty of people who would probably be better off spending their money supporting certain people or certain ministries, but, but where does the Lord want you to spend your money? You realize that it's not your money, right? It's the Lord's money. How does he want you to spend? Another danger, I think, as we think about just this topic of giving, the Bible tells us that he who gives is to give generously. And so there are people that give, but they give begrudgingly, and they give with, an, with a poor attitude. And the scriptures say, no, we, we want you to give sincerely, generously, and without hypocrisy. Well, there's another gift. It's called the gift of helps or the gift of service. Here's the definition of the gift of helps or the gift of service. The gift of helps is the spiritual enablement to support or assist members of the body of Christ so they may be free to minister to others. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 28, it's called helps. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 7, it's called service. It's really one and the same thing. Right? You either help through serving or you serve through helping. Those with the gift of helps are great at identifying tasks that the church needs to get done. They want to jump right in. They, they, they want to clear up space and time, both mentally and physically, for other people to use their gifts. Oftentimes, those jobs include things that are not necessarily thrilling or out in front. They're oftentimes mundane or unglamorous. But people with this gift generally prefer to just work behind the scenes. They're happy, just give me a task, let me do that. They don't want anyone clapping for them. They just want to jump in and make things easier. They also tend to find joy in helping alleviate burdens and responsibilities. The gift is usually accompanied with an attitude of humility. They don't say, oh, that's beneath me, I'm not going to do that. Epaphroditus is a great example, as we were studying in Philippians chapter 2, Paul says this in verse 25, he says, But I regard it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. And then he says this, Who is also your messenger and minister to my need. And then verse 30, he says this, Because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to fulfill what was lacking in your service to me. You say, well, how was this gift demonstrated by Jesus? Well, you think about the entirety of Jesus' ministry, and you can identify that as servanthood. Jesus was the servant. He was the servant of the Lord. We read this in Philippians 2, that Jesus came and humbled himself, and it says that he became a slave. He taught this. He lived this. All the disciples one day came to him and they say, we want to be the greatest. Who's the greatest? And Jesus said, you want to know what the greatest is? How to be the greatest? Become the servant of all. Do you have this gift? Do you find yourself saying continually, how can I be a help? How can I serve? Well, what can I do today to be a service to other people? I'm afraid we live in a culture where a lot of people say, I don't have the gift of service, but I do have the gift of being served. I like when other people serve me, wait on me hand and foot. But do you find yourself saying, look, I don't, I don't care what the job is. I, I just want to be a servant like Jesus. He's my Lord. He's my King. He's my Master. He's God, but He's also a servant. I want to be like Him. So, well, what can I do? 
You need me to change a diaper? I'll change a diaper. You need me to come on a Saturday and do landscaping? I'll do that. You need me to watch the kids? I'll, I'll do that. Just, I just want to serve. I just want to use, be used for the Lord. You say, well, what's the danger of someone who serves? Love people who serve. The danger is not knowing when to say what. No. And so you just keep serving and serving and serving. You don't realize that you're a finite human being and you can't say yes to everything. And the reality is that sometimes people do take advantage of you. And so you need to be wise and discerning even in your service. Another danger is that you serve so much that you don't let other people serve. Because you, that's your thing. You want to do that thing. And so you say, no, I'll do that or I do that better. And you don't give other people an opportunity to serve. And it's interesting, right? Because allowing other people to serve is actually a way to serve. So if you're all about service, sometimes you just got to say, I'll let them do it. That's not because you're lazy. It's because you don't want to take blessing away from someone else who also wants to use their gift. Another thing that I think is a danger, and this is interesting, is sometimes those who are servants oftentimes feel like that's how they're going to grow spiritually. And so maybe you don't come to a worship service. Maybe you're not in the Bible because you're saying, well, I'm always serving, I'm always serving, I'm always serving. And you know who you sound like? A Martha. Because yes, you're working and you're doing good deeds, but you're not actually sitting at the feet of Jesus. And so if you want to serve and serve in the Spirit, you're going to have to be in the Word. Well, here's another gift. How about the gift of hospitality? Romans 12, 13. Here's the definition of hospitality. It's the ability to make people, even strangers, feel welcome in one's own home or in church as a means to disciple or to serve them. Those with this gift love to create a relaxed and comfortable atmosphere for friends and for guests. We often think of hospitality in terms of providing food. Maybe it's firing up the barbecue and cooking some salmon for people and having them over. That's true. But it's not just the home that you open up, it's also the heart. So there's a spirit of hospitality that's very warm and welcoming. I think of Lydia, who as soon as she got saved, she opened up her home and said, let's have Bible study here. I think of Peter's mother-in-law, that once she was healed, she said, Jesus, let me serve you and your friends. Or what about Zacchaeus, who opened his home and then intentionally invited people because he was so stunned at Jesus' teaching and his person that he wanted his friends to get to know him. People with hospitality just love creating opportunities for people to connect. They love to entertain. They love to open up their homes for fellowship. They aren't just part of the party planning committee, but they're intentional with creating an environment where people are going to be evangelized and, and other people are going to be ministered to. And they just love when the Word of God is central in their hospitality. Your gift of hospitality really does impact the way that you think, right? About your home and your wallet and your time. Some people just, they don't want to go through the trouble of cleaning up their home and having people over. And so you can go weeks and months without ever inviting anyone to your house. But someone who has the gift of hospitality, you realize that, no, my home is a gift. And this should be an outpost of gospel ministry. And so you should be welcoming people into your home all the time so that you can communicate gospel truth to them. We say, well, how was this gift demonstrated by Jesus? Think about it. If anyone made others, especially strangers, feel welcome, it was Jesus. 
So look, it's Jesus. It's not Martha Stewart who's the king of hospitality. Jesus is the supreme example of true, loving, humble hospitality. And the fascinating thing is how much money was Jesus making? Was he pulling in six figures? Did he have a sweet home? No, he had nowhere to lay his head. And you won't find someone who was more hospitable than Jesus. He was warm, he was empathetic, he was encouraging. He loved people and he welcomed them. In fact, when we read the book of Revelation, we read this in verse 20 of chapter 3. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and will dine with him and he with me. I love that about Christ. Always warm, always welcoming. You say, well, Dom, what are some of the dangers of hospitality? Again, here's another gift that seems pretty good. Well, um, just like serving, you can burn yourself out. And if you're not careful in who you invite, you can probably bur be burglarized, right? So you've got to be wise and discerning about who you invite into your home. Yes, hospitality is the love for strangers, but that doesn't mean that you throw wisdom out the door. There are also dangers of those who have the gift of hospitality. Like servants to be a Martha, you might care so much about providing the perfect environment that you overlook spiritual needs. Well, here's the gift of mercy. The gift of mercy in Romans chapter 12 and verse 8. Here's our definition. The gift of mercy is manifested in compassion, understanding, patience, and feeling towards the needy or suffering. Again, here's another gift where every single believer is called on to be merciful and compassionate but there are those that have a special knack for expressing this, for recognizing those that are in need and then attending to those needs. How is Jesus demonstrative of this gift? Well, Jesus was not only the most merciful and compassionate person to walk the earth, but he always taught on being merciful. Jesus taught in Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Every time you look at Jesus' teachings, he's, he's teaching on this idea of mercy. The merciful kings, the merciful servants, the merciful fathers, he showed countless mercy to countless people. The gospels repeatedly revealed Jesus' great compassion. He has compassion on the crowds. We saw that as he feeds the 5,000 and more. He has compassion on the lowly, on the destitute, on the sick. Over and over again, whether it's tender mercy to the woman at the well or to a widow, whether it's rebuking his disciples for disregarding children, Jesus is sweet and tender in his mercy. And of course, there's that parable, that powerful parable of the Good Samaritan. Everyone would have resonated with that. You have the priest, you have the religious leader, who see someone in need, and rather than attending to that need, they just walk on by. But then there's that one who feels in their gut compassion and does whatever is necessary to care for the needs of that man. That's Jesus. Has the Lord given you a capacity to fill, to express unusual compassion? Well, would someone identify you as empathetic, sensitive? Do you want to help people? who are in challenging circumstances. Help people who 
or in crisis? Are you quick to provide help and comfort to those and say, hey, I'll do whatever it takes? You might have the gift of mercy. Are you a good listener? You might have the gift of compassion. Here's a few dangers. You need to make sure that your mercy, your compassion, your empathy are also informed. Compassion doesn't mean that you compromise biblical truth. I think sometimes people gravitate toward hurting people and you become a shoulder to crime, but that's all you are. When in fact, you need to teach the truth, speak the truth, love in truth. Some people are hurting just because they're making bad decisions. And if you're always just warm and accepting and welcoming and compassionate, but you're never saying, hey, we got to change some things. The reason why you're falling into the patterns is because of such and such and such. So we need to be wise as we show compassion. We don't want to be enablers. We don't want to be codependents. Every time we express compassion, there also needs to be an accompaniment of truth. Well, those are the serving gifts. Let's see if we can fly by some speaking gifts. Just a few of them. Speaking gifts. These are the gifts, not so much of the things that we do with our hands and our feet, but these are the things that we do with our mouths. And the first is the gift of evangelism. Evangelism. Evangelism is the ability to successfully communicate the message of the gospel, especially to non-believers. Euangelizo, that's the Greek word, it just means to announce good news. Euangelion, it means the good messenger. Paul, he refers to this as an office in Ephesians chapter 4. This is someone who is gifted with the divine enablement to explain and to exhort and to apply the gospel to non-believers. In fact, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 5, he says, but you be sober in all things, enduring hardship. And he says, do this, do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Again, every believer is called to be a bearer of the gospel. We all have a great commission to fulfill, but God has uniquely gifted some of you to be extra good at this. I just uh, came back from a trip this week. There was a bunch of pastors at a pastor's retreat. And uh, there must have been, I don't know, maybe about 15 pastors on a plane. You know what 15 pastors on a plane do? Gospel conversation, gospel conversation, gospel conversation, gospel conversation. You say, Dom, were you gospel? I was sleeping. I was exhausted. But I woke up and I heard these, these gospel conversations and I'm praying and so encouraged that all these brothers were pursuing the lost and sharing the gospel. But Donald Whitney, he writes this, every evangelist is called to be a witness, but only a few witnesses are called to be vocational ministry of an evangelist. Just as each Christian, regardless of spiritual gift or ministry, is to love others, so each believer is to evangelize whether or not his or her gift is that of the evangelist. That's just a reminder to you that when you have an opportunity and you feel a prompting of the Spirit to share the gospel, I don't want you to say, well, I don't have the gift of evangelism because evangelism is for every single one of us. And you say this, well, how did uh, Jesus demonstrate the gift of evangelism? There are lots of evangelists in the Bible. You think of Paul, you think of Timothy, you think of Philip, but no one was better at pursuing the lost than Jesus Christ. This is why he came to the earth. 
He came to seek and save, the Bible says, that which is lost. And when he came, he didn't spend all of his time with the religious people. He didn't come to spend all of his time with those who are well. He said the, the well have no need for a physician, but it is those who are sick. And so Jesus spends time with the tax collector and the drunkard and the glutton and the sinner. And even though people said this guy is, this guy is evil because he's doing those things, no, Jesus knew that unless he spends time with those people, they don't get saved. Do you have the gift of evangelism? Do you enjoy being around non-Christians? Do you have a passion? Do you have a burden to see others come to faith? Does it break your heart to know that people are going to hell? There are people in our church that have this gift, and I'm so thankful that they're out exercising this gift, whether it's out on the street or private conversations. You say, well, what's the danger of this gift? I think the danger could be this, that you become so outward focused, you forget that the way that we become a real witness and a real light is to have a strong church. This church needs to be an outpost, an evangelistic outpost. Uh, you know, I told a, a, another pastor friend of mine, I said, you know, too often in the church, there's all these Han Solos, Han Solos. And he started laughing. He said, yeah, but even Han Solo had his deacon Chewbacca with him. We, we need to depend on one another. We need to be partners in the ministry. We, we need to be effective. So if one's evangelizing, you know how helpful it is to have someone praying that the Lord would stir in that person's heart to believe the gospel message? Here's another gift, the gift of exhortation or the gift of encouragement. Exhortation is the capacity to encourage others to act according to the correct application of biblical truths or to console others from the promise of Scripture. This word here, very familiar to you, it's the word parakleto or parakleto. It means to beseech, to exhort, to call upon, to encourage, to strengthen this is someone who knows how to guide and help and correct and console those who are in need. They redirect those ensnared by sin by giving them some spiritual perspective. And the primary means of exhortation is to remind people of what God's word says. And so exhorters are always going to be exhorting from the scripture and reminding them of the justification they have by faith in Christ and Christ alone. We see Paul commanding Titus to use his gift in Titus 1.9, he does the same thing for Timothy. If you've been in my office, you've seen this on my wall. It comes from 2 Timothy 4.2. It says this, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. It's because one of the many responsibilities of a pastor is to exhort others to live godly lives. The Apostle Paul himself, he was an exhorter. He said this in Colossians 1.28, Him we proclaim, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. But just so you don't misunderstand, Paul had next to him his buddy, his sidekick, Barnabas, who the Bible says is the son of encouragement. And so those two things can go hand in hand. You can be an exhorter, but you should also be an encourager. Do you have this gift, Christian? Are you motivated to challenge others? Do you feel like sometimes I might have to rebuke this person? I might have to admonish this person because they're not living a life that is pleasing to the Lord. Do you desire to see everyone in your church built up so that all the church is glorifying God? 
Just a couple dangers. Exhorters must guard against being insensitive, even impatient with other people. You need to make sure that your zeal for the spiritual maturity of others is characterized by both truth and grace. Another potential danger for exhorters is they need to guard against majoring in minors, not keeping the gospel central and demanding that people live according to their rules and their their laws and their regulations rather than the scriptures. And then let me just finish with this. We can get to the gift of prophecy, which I believe is preaching, but let's finish with the gift of teaching. Here's, Here's the definition. The gift of teaching is the skill to clearly expound, explain, and apply God's word in such a way that the listener, I get it. I understand better now. That was helpful. That's going to help me to grow. You know, interestingly, Paul, he doesn't mention teaching in the list of gifts in 1 Corinthians 12. And that seems kind of strange. But when you look at that list of 1 Corinthians 12, he mentions the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge. And I think both of those things are related to teaching. You say, Dom, why do you think that? Well, because every time Paul talks about the word, he's talking about the word of God, the word of faith, the word of truth, the word of the Lord, the word of life. He's talking about things that need to be taught. But this gift of teaching, it's not just standing up here behind a pulpit. And I'm thankful for that because there's lots of teachers that are teaching right now to our children. And teaching can be writing. And teaching can be counseling. I think of Luke. Luke wrote this in Luke chapter 1. He said, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile accounts of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us, he says, It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in orderly sequence, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty about the things that you have been taught. Gifted teachers like Luke, they have reliable resources. They work very hard and long hours in order to digest information and then to put it in a way that is easy for us to understand. It's not just an information dump, but it is so that you would have confidence and assurance that this is what God's word says. In addition to Luke's writing, you also have Aquila and Priscilla, tag team, husband and wife, and they sit down with Apollos, and what do they do? They teach him, they disciple him, they instruct him so that he can be more faithful in his witness to others. You say, well, how did Jesus demonstrate that gift? And I can say, do I really need to say? Jesus is the master teacher. He is the prophet. When Jesus spoke, people listened. Other teachers were dependent on other people. Like me, I'm looking for quotes, and who do I quote, and what's helpful? Jesus speaks of his own authority. Everything that he says is God's word. So the question to you is, do you enjoy teaching? Do you like communicating truth? Not for your glory, and not so people can pat you on the back, but because when you teach, people actually get it. They understand, and they grow in their love and affection and desire to honor the Lord. Do you like to learn? Do you like to study? Do you like to examine the scriptures? And just a couple of dangers. One danger, hopefully, Lord prevent that Nick and I would ever do this, 
You just talk a lot, but you're not actually teaching anything. You might like to study and convey information, but you're not actually pointing people to Jesus. Lord, may that never be. Another danger is just to teach in words only. You're saying a lot of good things. They're biblical, but your life doesn't match with it. Lord, may that never be. Jesus always taught by example, by illustration. He did both the teaching and the living. Well, as we come to a close, I'll say this. All of those serving gifts and speaking gifts, you put them all together, and you've got Jesus. The reason why Jesus gave us these gifts is because we get to represent him here on earth. And if you're hiding your gift, bearing your gift, not using your gift, not exercising your gift, we're going to look a lot less like Jesus. But if you say, Dom, look, I, I didn't know about that gift, or I feel like I have that gift, I need to sharpen that gift, I need to, I need to be encouraged more in my gift. And if we start using our gifts here as a church, we're going to look more and more like Christ. We're going to build one another up. We're going to have an impact on the world. And ultimately, God is going to be glorified. Let's pray. Father, it's actually exciting as I look out here and the faces of our church family to realize that you've given each of us a gift and you want us to work together. You want us to be of one mind, one heart, with the same goal, with the same soul, to build up your body. Jesus, we're so thankful that you didn't leave us here by ourselves, but you gave us the helper. And the helper is set up his shop in us. He dwells within us, and he's motivating us and encouraging us and teaching us and convicting us and sharpening us and refining our gifts so that we can be effective for faithful ministry. Father, I even get excited thinking of my own household, how you give to my wife and my kids. And each household is uniquely gifted to make an impact for the kingdom. Thank you for that, Father. I pray that you would help us to recognize and never be sidetracked with the gifts in themselves, but to understand that the gifts are to be used for others. Lord, I think of those words of A.B. Simpson, who once said, once it was the blessing, but now it is the Lord. Once it was the filling, but now it's his word. Once his gifts I wanted, but now the giver only. Once I sought for healing, now himself alone. Oh, Father, please help us to understand that the gifts are not the goal, but they're the gateway. And would you please instill in our minds and encourage our hearts that these gifts are not superpowers, they're not toys to be played with or trophies to be shelved, but they're tools to be used to build up the body. And as we do that, God, we will be effective in making you known and extending the kingdom. Be your help, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.